from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News. Today, Amazon adds an inflation charges in the US, Sion raises $94 million for fraud prevention, and the first tweet NFT flops at auction. All this and more on today's show. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Let's face it, cards were not designed for online. Payments can take days to settle, hurting customer loyalty, while high fraud, clunky checkouts and expensive fees means millions in missed revenue. At TrueLayer, we've made instant payments available for businesses across Europe and the UK, so you can cut costs, fight fraud and get money moving faster. To learn more, visit truelayer.com forward slash payments. Welcome to episode 622 of Fintech Insider. My name is Benjamin Ensor, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Nicole Perry, Strategy Director of Business Design and Growth at 11FS. Great to have you back on the show, Nicole. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you, Benjamin. Um, I've been away from home for a couple of weeks visiting some of our clients, so it's nice to be, to be back in London. Fantastic. It's great to have you back on the show. Of course, as always, we're joined by some very special guests. First up, making a fintech insider debut, we have Bensi Yen Drusak, who is co-founder and chief operations officer of Sion. Welcome to the show, Bensi. Um, we'll get into your news a little bit later, but can you give our audience a brief um, overview of Sion, please? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, we're a fraud prevention company. We started out a couple of years back. It was a two-man operation back then. I'm one of the co-founders. I'm in charge of operations. And uh, today we are uh, a group of 200 employees. We just closed our Series B funding round as the, as the news have hit. And we're working to help companies like Revolut and Molly and a bunch of others in order to profile their customers and, and stop fraudsters and bad actors from doing what they do. And we take a look at the digital footprint of these online consumers and we associate risk to it. So that's what we do boil down into a sentence. Fantastic. And congratulations. And it's a welcome return for Kate Drew, Director of Research at CCG Catalyst. Welcome back, Kate. Can you give our listeners a quick recap on CCG uh, Catalyst and the work that you do, please? Absolutely. So I lead research at CCG Catalyst. Uh, We're a financial services consulting firm really focused on the intersection of banking and fintech. Uh, And I manage our pipeline of research content. So that's on the client side, as well as externally through thought leadership reports and things like that. Very happy to be here. So thank you for having me back. Welcome back. I remember you were on a previous one where I think we had four directors of research on on, on one podcast, which was a bit too much for our listeners. Indeed, I remember that. <laughs> All right, let's get into the news. So our first story is that Amazon is adding a 5% fuel and inflation surcharge. This was reported by CNN, among others. So Amazon has announced that for the first time in the company's history, it's going to charge sellers a 5% fuel and inflation surcharge in the United States. The e-commerce giant said the new fee will begin on April the 28th and is being imposed because inflation has worsened significantly in recent months. The fee hikes on sellers could translate and probably will translate into higher costs to customers as businesses seek to pass along those rising expenses. 
Amazon spokesman Patrick Graham told CNN that the fee surcharge applies only to the fee rates paid by sellers that choose to use Amazon's fulfillment services, which includes storing, packing, and shipping products. And about 92% of Amazon sellers use fulfillment by Amazon in some respect, according to Jungle Scout's 2021 State of the Seller report. So that's quite big news. People have been pretty used to cheap deliveries. Kate, you're in the States. Do you think this is the end of a cheap deliveries culture? Do you think other companies will follow suit? Amazon's always seen as this big juggernaut. Is this uh, this a chink in the armor? I think, I mean, other companies already are following suit, right? I think it's important to remember that what we're seeing here is actually part of a a larger trend and, you know, the inflationary pressures that we're feeling overall. Um, Uber and, and Lyft are adding fuel surcharges as well. So I think it's maybe less about online deliveries and, and online commerce and more about life as a whole. Perhaps that's even scarier, though. I don't know. But um, I think about, you know, the the impact to, to online shopping, you know, from something like this, from such a huge company that has such a huge footprint. But then I also think, what are the alternatives? Am I going to get into my car and drive to the shopping mall? What is that going to cost me in this environment? So then it becomes a conversation about the broader consumer spending landscape in general. And then, of course, you know, the wider inflation conversation. Nicole, what, what did you make of this? Do you think... Um... I mean, Amazon's obviously used free delivery as, as you know, within Prime and more widely as a, as a fantastic marketing technique. I mean, why not order something from Amazon if it arrives tomorrow and it's free? Is that an unsustainable business model? Is this a, is a was it a marketing thing that's that doesn't add up in a world of rising fuel costs, or do you think there's something else behind this? I mean, I think the model version of me would be saying that Amazon would be sort of taking advantage of the situation and passing that cost on when actually they could quite easily absorb that as a business. Uh, but the business sort of head of me says that actually if, if this is to be a sustaining cost that's going to be occurred, then it's sort of part of doing business for sellers. But then ultimately what will happen is that, as you said, it's passed on to consumers. And whether or not that will change consumer behaviour, I'm not sure. I know personally I'm a huge user of Prime. A lot of the things that I buy from Amazon, I only buy it because of the reliability of the service and the free delivery charge. So I think it could potentially drive consumers to shop elsewhere if that, you know, if a delivery charge or Prime was to stop being a marketing technique or something that people could take advantage of. Do you think Amazon is just sort of taking advantage of its uh, sellers or its, its retailers. I, mean, I suppose the challenge with being a big successful company is people start taking pot shots at you because you're big and successful. I mean, is is Amazon a sort of evil giant taking advantage of sellers, or is this a a justified response to inflation? Yeah, I, it's a sort of sensible business decision, I would say. And you know, if this would, as you say, it kind of these large organisations get really uh, maybe penalised sometimes for the choices that they make. But if you know, it was a merchant on a street corner who had increased costs, then that would then be passed on in whatever manner. So it, it feels like it's some got some justification behind it. Yeah, I, I think the issue with that you can't take that in isolation with Amazon. There's a number of other business practices that kind of come together as a perfect storm, which makes you think, which makes you kind of uh, maybe judge judge them in the wrong way. 
Um, in isolation, yes, it seems a, a fair decision, but with a lot of the other business practices that go on, yeah, you could maybe say that they, are, they, they potentially were taking advantage and that they know they have a huge base of sellers and, yeah, they've opened up a huge distribution channel for them. Kate and 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 Bensi, um, you know, Amazon is a is a classic platform business model. Um, you know, they built a fantastic platform. There are all sorts of sellers that have built businesses off the top of that. Do either of you think there's a a lesson there or a warning for maybe companies in the financial services industry that are similarly sort of starting to build businesses on platforms or relying on partners and ecosystems? Is that a threat to to smaller businesses that you, you when you when you become dependent on a platform, that you're then very vulnerable to changes in that platform's policies and and practices. Can you think of, or have you seen any parallels in financial services that you think are relevant here? I would certainly think so. There has to be a threat, right? Because unless you're building something out in-house, then you're reliant on your partners. And if they change their policies all of a sudden, which in this case, we're talking about fuel surcharge, then obviously that affects you as a user of that platform or as a seller or an operator or um or or however you partner uh, with that platform but in in this case to be honest i think like i question whether this is the new normal right in today's world we're seeing disruptions in supply chain uh, we're seeing volatility in commodity prices um and obviously for the past 10 years we've been used to a very stagnant time where everything was going well and and you know we we didn't see those kind of anomalies um in geopolitics or or regarding covid you know we we just had we hadn't had these disruptions in the past but now we do so i question whether you know do we is this the new normal and do we have to account for the fact that in today's world if there's a uh, uh, sort of a disruption in the supply chain, then all of a sudden prices are going to change and that's going to have a ripple effect and then we're going to see commodity prices changing. And then there'll be sort of large suppliers like Amazon implementing fuel surcharges, which on the other hand, you know, fuel surcharges in the, in, in the airline ticketing uh, business and sales is nothing new. We, we see fuel charges and airlines actually account for different uh, prices in, in fuel and based on geolocations and whenever you're buying an airline ticket you're you're paying that price um so i i don't know if i mean i i get that it's something new and it wasn't there before but i i don't necessarily think it's like a a, a terrible thing or it's just the way business is done in today's world this is going to ripple through into fintech isn't it kate i mean if we've if we've got sort of inflation going up because you know fuel prices are going up because of russia's invasion of ukraine we've got various other costs going up you know partly because of you know potential grain shortages again because of the the, the russian invasion of ukraine um we're going to get uh, if inflation goes up we're going to get rising interest rates and of course interest rates sits at the heart of so many financial services business models you know, Bensi was right. We've had sort of 10 years of relatively benign economic environment. Could this, is this the sort of the end of good times for, for fintech or the end of easy money? Are there, are there big ripple effects here, do you think, Kate? Or is, is this, um, am, I, am I overblowing it? No, I mean, I, I think this is certainly going to be a real test of that, right? We're going to start to see, you know, the answers to some of those questions. I think, Anytime you have an industry that sort of relies on the promise of future earnings, you know, for valuation, 
that in an environment like this becomes very dangerous because you're kind of betting on the future, betting on future earnings. And then those future earnings are all of a sudden worth a lot less. And we're starting to see that sort of in the tumbling of, of some of these fintech stocks already. I think we're going to see ripples of that into the private markets, you know, because the stakes for all of those bets are going to get a lot higher. So I think you're absolutely right. I, I think that we're really going to start seeing, you know, a real test of, of fintech now. I think we've said for a long time, right, that the fintech industry, you know, has never experienced a full economic cycle. It, it really, you know, came into being and then experienced, like you said, about a decade of, of relative stability. So now we're going to start to see, you know, really what it's all worth yeah that's really really interesting so we see as you say we see that the stock price is changing already we see shift in in the sort of private markets nicole maybe last question on this do you think there's any sectors of fintech that get particularly affected by sort of rising inflation rising in- interest rates okay <laughs> i realize that's quite a tough question are there any particular areas that you think will be particularly vulnerable to this or do you think it's just overextended businesses that have borrowed borrowed a lot and have got no, no revenue coming in or not enough revenue coming in yeah i mean any fintechs that are connected by partners or have a consumer base that are inventory heavy which then be, you know you then get that knock-on effect up the chain into the fintech i think there could certainly be some impact there but you know in general i think the the attitude towards fintech venture capital inflows and valuations is still super buoyant and i think the pressure will be seen on other organizations that are dependent on the kind of the sources that are currently being inflated so in a nutshell um i'm not entirely sure that it will have an immediate impact um but as we see those costs flow through uh to every part of an organization, then then maybe it's something that will become more apparent. Okay, so let's move on to our next story, which is that fraud potential fintech Sion has raised $94 million to expand globally. So London-based Sion has raised uh, £94 million in a Series B funding round led by private equity investment firm IVP. The funds might make the Anglo-Hungarian company the most highly invested Hungarian-founded business ever, apparently. The company, which uh, helps online businesses fight fraud, will use the money to expand across North America, Latin America, and the Asia-Pacific region. And the company is aiming to democratize access to fraud-fighting technology to make the internet safer for businesses, uh, where historically protection has only been accessible to large enterprises with the budget and staff to implement this type of technology. Other investors included uh, Creandum and Portfolion and angel investing from founders and senior executives from Coinbase, Wise and Slack. And the company says it has helped save its customers more than 50 million euros in potentially fraudulent transactions so far. Bensi, so we're gonna, obviously going to come to you first on this. So firstly, congratulations on the raise. Um, this is super exciting news for you. Um, how, how easy is it for you to sort of take your business into new markets. I mean, obviously, fraud is something of a global business. Is is fraud fighting a global business? Or are there lots of national nuances? It is a global business. And we've built a product from day one, which has global coverage, and we aren't restricted based on geolocations. You know, whenever you're 
buying something online or you're registering somewhere as a consumer, you're submitting your email address, your phone number, you're, you're using a device and you have an IP address with which you're accessing that specific website uh, or the internet. And um, based on all of these data points that I just listed, we are able to sort of look out and, and scalp more information about yourself. And, and once we build that wide-ranging profile, we come up with a risk score and, and we also come up with a result um, with which we help our customers to decide whether they should allow you to register or they should reje- reject your registration or whether they should allow you to check out or whether they should, um, they should block that checkout process. And the reason being is because there's a lot of uh, bad actors out there who are trying to, you know, they're A, stealing your identity, stealing your credit cards, credentials, and they're trying to use it for all sorts of bad things. And with the pandemic, for example, it's been a, it's been an accelerant where an even larger user base is accessing online services and, and being involved in online commerce. Like my grandmother's buying her groceries online and she's vulnerable and she doesn't know whether she should be submitting her details or not uh, in, in various websites. So therefore, uh, yes, there is an ever larger need for online fraud prevention services. And yes, we are offering a solution that is able to provide global coverage, no matter where that user is sitting, we can find out just based on a couple of data points, how risky they are. So it sounds like you're sort of building almost building white lists of, of sort of good consumers who you, you, you can, you're fairly confident are safe, and then also presumably blacklists of, you know, there are certain indicators where you can just tell that somebody isn't who they say they are, or, or they're a known fraudster or, or whatever. Is that, is that broadly correct? Yeah, yeah. Broken down, we are essentially doing that. The The only thing I would point out is we're always looking at live information. So if, you know, yesterday, uh, a certain merchant or customer of ours thought that you were fraudulent or non-fraudulent, let's say, then it doesn't mean that today you're, you're not good. You're still going to be non-fraudulent because in the meantime, you know, you may have used your email address elsewhere and so on. So we're always looking at live information and not stale data. Uh, and when we talk about blacklists and whitelists, I always like to point that out because, you know, maintaining blacklists can get stale really easily. And how do you, how do you spot, and, and, it, and obviously I don't want you, you to give away all of your trade secrets um, <laughs> to all of our listeners, but how do you spot when someone's being impersonated? You know, let's say someone like Nicole has her identity stolen and somebody, you know, pops up at a retailer somewhere and is trying to order a load of stuff and they say, Hi, I'm Nicole and they're not, and they're not at all Scottish. How, how do you spot that that it's not her? Yeah, uh, Nicole, are you sitting out of the the UK currently? Yeah, I am. All right. So let's say I I was you know I was I'm at the supermarket and uh, Nicole drops her credit card and I memorize the numbers because uh, I have photographic memory, and then uh, I I sell that information on the dark web for I don't know five dollars a piece because i i'm i have photographic memory and i do that like 20 times a day and then i make money off of selling credit card information and then somebody else in the other part of the world tries to buy a gift card using uh, nicole's credit card credentials um in order to resell that gift card and make cash on that so it's, it's really smart you know how these fraudsters are trying to generate revenue so anyhow but then i would probably be using uh, an email address that's similar to Nicole's, so maybe 
Her email address is nicoleperry at gmail.com. I'll, I'll make something like, since I don't have access to that email address, I'll make something like nicole.perry at gmail.com. And I'll be using a VPN or a proxy to, to access the website. So they don't, they can't see my real IP address. And I'll be using a device that's, that's unusual for Nicole to use or not located in the UK either. And then I would try to check out online while buying that gift card. But you know, if, if, Sion is integrated, then we're, we would look at, you know, okay, nicole.perry at gmail.com. Is this email address registered on various social media platforms? Is it being used, actually? Um, is it registered on Facebook, Google, Twitter, uh, Spotify, Instagram? And Nicole's would be registered because I assume she's using an email address that's been used for like five years or even more. But uh, that fraudster, you know, since they're doing this at scale, they're not going to be taking the time to create Facebook profiles behind it. So then obviously the risk score would immediately jump because it seems like a fake email address. And in the meantime, they're using a VPN or a proxy, which is unusual for an everyday consumer to uh, to generally use for, for checking out. And uh, their device information would probably be off and then we would give a red flag and, and we would tell the merchant, well, you know, you can let them through. So in the end, we're not the ones making that decision. You can let them through, but you may be losing money over it because there's going to be a chargeback being filed um, by Nicole calling her bank. You know, this transaction wasn't done by me. And then the merchant makes that decision and, and calls off the, the checkout process and blocks uh, the customer from checking out. So, Bensi, I've got another question for you. Thank you for that. That was really useful. There's, there's obviously lots of um, anti-fraud companies out there. There's lots of other companies that do similar sorts of things to what you're doing. But you've grown like gang- gangbusters over the last you know, four years. It's incredibly <laughs> impressive growth. What's what's the gap in the market that you 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 found? I mean, what what are you doing that's a bit different to some of your competitors that's enabled you to to grow so fast? I mean, are you just charming and really good at sales, or is there something special that you that you're doing that's a little bit different? Sure. Well, when we started our company with my co-founder, we were university friends, and we were actually building a crypto exchange, and we faced a bunch of chargebacks and, and fraudulent transactions after accepting credit card payments. And um, we looked at fraud prevention solutions on the market back then, and we realized everybody's aiming for enterprise sales because that's where the big bucks are. And we weren't their ideal customer profile. We would have had to sit through discovery and sales calls, and they had complex pricing structures and integration processes. So we said, okay, let's build uh, something in-house. So let's not be reliant on a, on a third-party provider, right? Because then we, we just can't pay that price. And we built our own tool, then we completely pivoted towards developing this full-on fraud prevention suite. And here we are today where our ethos is to democratize fraud fighting. And what we mean by that is we want to make it as easily available to as many fraud and risk managers and as many companies out there in the simplest form possible. So we're, we're putting our product first. You can trial it out with a couple of clicks. Even if you're sitting at 2 a.m. in the middle of the night, our API documentation is public facing. Our pricing model is, is public facing. It's on our website. So I think the ease of access, which in, in today's world, to, in 2022, I think the only way to buy software is where you can, you can do all of these things, like immediately get an understanding of, of how I can buy it in, in a transparent manner. And nobody else is doing this. And I, I think. To, to answer your questions, this is what has been fueling our, our growth over the past couple of years is taking this approach, uh, whereas others are just have a different go-to-market model in the market. 
Fantastic. Kate, what, 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 what do you make of this? Is, 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 is fraud talked about enough? Is this, are people doing enough to, to, to fight fraud? What, what did you make of this story? I mean, I, I think what you're doing is great. I think I was most intrigued by your mention of Revolut earlier because it made me think of the fraud issues that a lot of the neobanks in the U.S. have been having lately. They're really struggling with it. You know, some merchants have even at times declined to accept a card issued by by a neobank. And I think these companies, they're so good at user experience, but fraud prevention is, is really tough. So I think, you know, there's definitely something there. And I'd be interested to know if your expansion to the U.S., um, if that will be a big piece of it, because I know that, you know, those companies are definitely in need of a solution. Sure. And we, we already have Nubank on board, which is a quite a large scale Latin American neobank. And we're very proud to have their logo on our website. And actually, I was just over in the U.S. a month ago and I was paying somewhere and I saw a small sticker saying like, no, you know, like a bunch of neobanks were listed there and their card wasn't accepted. So they, you know, they said like, no, we're not accepting that, which relates to what you just mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. Neobanks is a is a massive ICP for us, ideal customer profile, and helping them onboard their their customers in a safe way. Whereas on top of that, ID verification, which uh, to be fair, I don't really think is is uh, bulletproof all the time. We can integrate under that layer, and in a seamless manner, in a frictionless manner, we can authenticate those users. Very similarly to how I had explained in the in the case of Nicole's, uh, you know, credit card information being stolen. Fantastic. Okay, we're just going to take a quick pause here um, while you hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back very shortly. Did you know that the majority of people are investing in cryptocurrency through a taxable account when they could be using an IRA, that's an individual retirement account, and avoiding or deferring those taxes? With Alto Crypto IRA, you can invest in crypto without tax headaches, creating a free account in only minutes. Choose from over 150 coins and invest with as little as $10. That's right, only 10 bucks. No setup charges and no account fees. To open an Alto Crypto IRA with as little as 10 just go to altoira.com forward slash insider. That's A-L-T-O-I-R-A.com forward slash insider. The second 11FS Foundry Drop is here. Say hello to 11 Savings, rules-powered rewards and savings functionality that lets you create true customer-focused propositions in minutes. Imagine if this then that meets a financial services operating system. Imagine plugging in external data feeds like the weather and having an actual rainy day fund. Get a demo today at 11fs.com forward slash foundry. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. So the U.S. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has sued TransUnion for deceptive marketing. The story was reported in Reuters and various other media. So the U.S. Consumer Watchdog on Tuesday sued TransUnion and one of its former executives. The credit reporting agency has been accused of tricking consumers into making recurring payments. The company was fined in 2017 for similar activity. The lawsuit, filed by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in a federal court in Illinois, accuses John Danaher, who previously headed one of TransUnion's subsidiaries, of failing to ensure that the company stopped the deceptive activity. The suit seeks monetary relief for consumers, injunctive relief and fines. 
The director, Rohit Chopra, said in a statement, TransUnion is an out-of-control repeat offender that believes it is above the law. TransUnion has hit back against the allegations, saying they were meritless. So let's let's start with Unicol. How was TransUnion deceptive? Do you know what they've done? Yeah, so essentially TransUnion asked consumers to provide credit card information as part of the ID verification process for access to their free credit report. They then integrated sort of deceptive buttons that gave the impression that the customer could access a free credit score in addition to viewing their free credit report. But in reality, clicking this button actually signed consumers up for a recurring monthly charge using the credit card information that they had provided. So, yeah, tricking them into here's something for free and you can get something else if you click this button, but actually signing them up for a recurring charge. Wow. Kate, how, how bad is this? I mean, as, as foreigners, you know, there's a bit of a caricature that Americans are very quick to go to court. Is this normal, though, to see a, a regulator suing a big company like this? How, how bad is this? I think, I mean, it's bad because it damages trust. I mean, even aside from the the lawsuit and, you know, kind of coming back to this issue that had already been addressed and, you know, has obviously not been remedied, aside from all of that, is is the issue of, of trust. And I think that's something that anyone can relate to no matter where you are. Consumers need to be able to access data on their credit and they need to be able to trust the stewards of that data. So I think that's what I worry about most with a story like this is the the trust there and and the risk to that. Nicole, is this... I mean, this is a credit bureau, right? This isn't just, it's not just a, I say just a lender. (laughs) It's not an issuer, it's not a bank, it's a credit rating agency. You know, they ought to be on customer's side, perhaps. Have have they got too much power? Is that the source of the problem? I mean, they do have a lot of power in people's lives. I mean, they're absolutely crucial to customers' accessibility to a number of different things, whether it be, it's not just credit cards, you know, it's cars, loans to buy things, renovate houses, um, maybe even for emergencies and in some situations access to jobs where the credit bureau is used to um, verify or uh, check out the the potential employee before um, an offer is given. So I think that's a huge privileged position to be in in society. They are at the centre of a lot of interactions between institutions and employers, employees, etc. Yeah, and it's just it's just really bad business practice. I feel like a few years ago, this was sort of common that you could get, you know, tripped up with these things. And then businesses realised that actually it's not a sustainable or fair way to do business. So I was actually really surprised when I read this story. Bensi, what, what did you make of this? I mean, you know, we, we, we've talked, we talk a lot about, you know, fintechs coming in and disrupting. <laughs> How come, you know, the credit scoring hasn't been disrupted in the States yet? Do you think that's going to happen? Great question. Well, I was smiling because trust and credit bureaus over the past couple of years, those are two terms which I'm not sure how well uh, they intertwine, right? I mean, Equifax has been in the headlines a couple of years ago. But apart from that, I'm shocked because like, look, like deceiving consumers is nothing new. We see companies doing that. But from from a credit bureau agency, I wouldn't have expected that. Like Kate said, I mean, uh, you're essentially wanting to trust this body with you know your information and a body that you can turn to and have 
legit information in there and in in reality they're doing things which are shady which i i question whether that's good or bad now when it comes to breaking away from these bros i or, or being disrupted something that i've seen specifically in the asia pacific market and i i know this isn't applicable to like you know large-scale loans or or even mortgages housing mortgages but uh, we do have clients and companies using our system for actually credit uh, disbursement. So we see these micro lending originators in Asia Pacific. They're really prevalent. And meanwhile, you know, mobile wallet and mobile payment usage uh, in this region of the world is, is really penetrated. It's highest penetration all over the world. But consumers don't actually, they may not even have a, a means of ID verification or they may not even have a bank account with a classic brick and mortar. Uh, bank so well then the question arises how do you disperse loans to them how do you do the credit check uh, on them how do you know that they're going to pay back well the answer is there that you take a look at alternative data right so they have a phone number they have an email address they're using a device so if you aggregate data based on their digital footprint then you can make a decision based on based on like a 50 dollar loan right uh, and they, they can make very accurate decisions. So there's high correlations between the lack of like a LinkedIn account related to an email address and the risk of, of non-repayment. But I did mention like, you know, but I can't imagine like you can, you can disperse a house, a house mortgage just based on a digital footprint analysis. I don't know. I, I think you have to maybe blockchain over the long term could be like a viable solution or or collecting and aggregating more information. Because I also know like credit bureau data is not always reliable. In fact, in many cases, it can be misleading. People can have bad credit scores, even though they are very, you know, they should have good credit scores. So that's how the sort of credit rating system potentially gets changed and improved. But, but Kate, coming back to the sort of regulatory failure that you, you, you touched on, you know, this They've got form here, right? This is not the first time. There were previous fines. I mean, why didn't the fines previously work? I mean, obviously, you can't say why an individual executive chooses to do something. But you know, what, is, what, do, what do you think this means for sort of regulation, particularly in the United States? So I don't know exactly what the answer is here. But I do think generally, and generally speaking, you know, if the fines that a company is getting for bad behavior is dwarfing the revenue that they're generating, you know, there's not as much incentive to make a change. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily what happened here, but the the risk-reward dynamics, unfortunately, you know, speak to that. So I think, you know, the the current administration is doing a lot to to empower the CFPB, I think. And that's one of the reasons that we're starting to see more announcements like this. But I don't know if if just the fine is is really going to be enough over over the long term. Nicole, what do you think maybe needs needs to happen next? How does the US or indeed other countries stop this kind of thing from happening and as you say destroying trust in in financial services well an option could be for the businesses that actually use transunion to say we're not going to collaborate or partner with an organization that doesn't share the same values as ourselves i mean that is a way to dry up the business you know a fine here or there 
you know, they're still going to keep the flow and clearly aren't learning from their mistakes. So if you're actually cut out by your own community, then I'm pretty sure they would stop acting in such a manner um, much, much more quickly. That's an interesting point. So at some point, a company like TransUnion, if it repeatedly acts against consumers' interests, its own brand gets tarnished so much that, that other companies stop wanting to work with it. Yeah, and, you know, additionally as well, you know, I've just had a thought about ESG, the way that these companies are valued now is that, um, you know, social responsibility is becoming such a huge part of, well, it's certainly a growing part of valuation and an influence in valuation. So uh, if that was to then again extend to the people that partner with TransUnion, you know, you then not only have a moral obligation to want to not work with them, but also uh, the potential risk on your own business as well. So maybe that could be a way to drive out bad behaviours. Let's hope so. All right, let's move on to our uh, final sort of big, big story of this episode, which is that Brex is expanding further into financial services, landing DoorDash as a new customer. Uh, this was reported in Outfy, among others. So the US fintech Brex has introduced a new software platform in the biggest change to the company since its launch in 2018. Best known for its corporate credit card, uh, the company is now launching Brex Empower in a wider move into financial services. The strategic shift comes with the new software platform that it says will help fast-growing companies move even faster. Empower will serve as the foundation for all Brex products moving forward, starting with a completely new spend management product. One of the first users of Brex Empower is the food delivery service DoorDash, which is valued at around $36 billion. Uh, Brex itself raised $300 million in a Series D2 round in January which put its own valuation at $12.3 billion. So what do we, what do we make of this, this story? It's a, is, is this marketing spin or is this a sort of fundamental shift? I'm thinking leaning, leaning towards you, Kate, on this one first. I think you might be closest to it. I don't really see this so much as, as a pivot, right? I think I see it really as an expansion of Brex's core aim, which has always been to serve businesses, right, and enable them to to run more smoothly. So maybe that started with a credit card or a corporate card, and now it's expanding to spend management. It honestly feels to me like the addition of complementary services to an already successful product offering, which is a common model in the fintech community. It's probably the most common model in the fintech community. I think if anything, if there's a shift here, I see that more in in DoorDash. And if Brex is shifting its focus more to larger businesses, right? Because bigger businesses have different needs than smaller businesses. And so to me, that would signal maybe a, a shift in strategy that they would need to really think about. But as far as, you know, moving into software, they have to diversify their revenue. And I think this makes a whole lot of sense. What do you reckon, Nicole? Is Kate right that this is probably good good marketing on a strategy that's been sensible, but probably been planned for a while? Yeah, I completely agree with Kate. It feels certainly like a sophisticated expansion of what they've already got. And, you know, when we talk about digital business models, you know, moving into software and sort of as a service and holistic servicing of enterprise style clients, it definitely feels like they're moving in that direction. So yeah, I applaud them for being um, clever. And uh, with regards to it being a strategic shift, I think it's probably, you know, they're asking for a lot of coverage on this with it being classed as a shift and, a, you know, a big change when 
in reality, it's been, to me, it feels like it's been thought through very cleverly and has been incrementally built. There is, I mean, there is something to be said for trying to diversify their revenues, right, from from sort of credit card interchange fees, which obviously are particularly high in the States, but could at some point, you know, get regulated down or competed down towards, um, you know, recurring sort of subscriptions for for. The software, uh, Ben, ben C, you, your business, presumably your your subscription business, right? You presumably get recurring subscription revenues from from your customers. Is that right? Correct. Uh, we actually bill based on the number of transactions that runs through our system, or number of API calls, number of requests. Uh, it's a micro fee, and we have a recurring revenue model. Uh, so we bill monthly based on the usage. It's pay as you go. So, so Kate, I mean, this basically this makes a lot of sense for Brex to. Right, try and diversify into sort of more recurring re- revenues, right? Of course. I mean, I don't think the interchange model alone is sustainable um, for the reasons that you mentioned in large part. I think we've known that for a really long time. And, you know, diversifying through a subscription or, or a SaaS model could be very valuable to them, for sure. It's a pretty crowded part of the market, though, isn't it? Because you know, 10 years ago, everybody was totally ignoring small businesses. And now it seems like everybody's focused on small businesses. You know, even insurance companies are waking up to small businesses. Um, is that part of what's going on here? You know, I mean, part of the, you know, the sort of clever marketing as well is to just try and stand out a bit from the competitors, get a bit more noise? Or is am I being too cynical and, and Brex is actually going further and actually you know, genuinely going beyond what some of its competitors are doing? I think it's doing sort of exactly what its competitors are doing. And I think it's going to end up competing with companies that it may not compete directly with now because so many companies serving the small business space are looking to bundle services together and essentially end up as a a one-stop shop of sorts, right? And the more companies do that, the more they start to look like each other. Right. I think the success of Square has proven that one stop shop model is, you know, very successful. They started with payments dongles, but they expanded into all kinds of things, including email marketing. So it looks like Brex is is doing kind of similar things in a different way, obviously, but these companies are all serving the same market. So at some point does it become about who can bundle the right services and deliver them effectively? You made a really interesting point earlier there, didn't you, about about DoorDash being a significantly bigger company, and, it, and does that mean they they lose focus? You know, instead of focusing on maybe smaller businesses and micro businesses, suddenly they're focusing on you know, DoorDash, which is okay, not an enterprise yet, but you know, a subs, you know, big business. Is that is that a mistake? I don't know if it's a mistake, but I think you know my comment on that earlier was really to is that is that a shift in strategy, right? Because small businesses have different needs than larger businesses. And you have to think about the services you're providing, the features, the capabilities, what you're bundling together, you know, kind of back to that idea differently, depending on who your who your targets are. I'm not saying that they can't do both, but I think there's going to have to be some real thought there. It'll be interesting to see how, how Brex handles that. Any last thoughts on this, Nicole? Yeah, I was just um, sort of considering the conversation there about the SMBs versus moving into a larger client. And I often find that the solutions that are built and delivered for smaller 
consumers, whether it's, you know, individuals uh, who, you know, use Monzo for their disposable income or whether it's SMEs that are really small and actually have really small revenue models. The solutions that are built for these types of end users tend to be very specific, built very well. The jobs to be done are very well understood. Whereas when you try and design for a larger organisation, it doesn't ever really seem to go that way. So I think it's actually quite cleverly really nailed how to solve the pain point, and now they're dialing that up. Bensi, if your if your co-founder came to you, you know, tomorrow and said, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna start serving big enterprises as well," you know, given your track record of, of focusing focusing on smaller businesses, would you tell him he was out of his mind, or would you say, "Okay, let's look, let's let's go for it"? I don't think uh, the two necessarily sort of um, are. You know, like it's not like you can't do. You have to do one or the other. I do believe there there is a way of serving both ends of the stick, and and we have seen companies do that successfully, especially over time. You know, moving from from one direction and sort of widening their portfolio with a range of products and serving a multitude of client segments. So I don't believe it's impossible to do that. And I certainly wouldn't say like, you know, you're out of your mind. I mean, <laughs> uh, if the if if the business model and the go to market strategy is right, then you can make it happen. Um, and I'm all for for integrating more, more services together and bundling it and making everybody's life easier, because that's what we should be about, right? The more data we are able to work with and the better decisions we can make and processes become smoother over time. I'm sure we will be talking about Brex again on, on future episodes, so we shall see how it goes. Fantastic. Thank you all. Okay, now for the part of the show where we quickly round up uh, some of the other stories from the week uh, that we don't have time to cover, but still deserve a quick shout out. Uh, Nicole, do you want to get us started? So two years after halting plans to launch in the UK, Robinhood has revived those plans um, with a deal to buy crypto app Ziglu, which is a London-based fintech app that allows users to trade Bitcoin and several other cryptocurrencies. And uh, the acquisition will help in expansion plans in the UK, but also wider in Europe. And um, it's to be it's said that the deal could provide you know crucial boost to growth prospects for Robinhood, whose performance has been weakened since the GameStop trading frenzy last year. Um, in terms of the acquisition, were not disclosed, and the deal is still subject to regulatory approvals and other closing conditions. Um, but certainly um, an exciting time for the UK fintech market. Um, be interesting to see kind of how and what. Robinhood enter with and I think that uh, this acquisition is quite telling how that will land with UK consumers versus uh, sort of US Gen Z consumer acquisition that they've been famous for um, will be will be one to one to watch out for. Indeed we shall see. Okay uh, the next story is that better.com has announced more layoffs citing mortgage market turbulence. So the mortgage lender better.com announced another round of layoffs on Tuesday after cutting roughly 900 people late last year in a mass firing over Zoom. better.com was one of the pandemic's early business winners quadrupling in size when mortgage rates were low but it has now become better known for bungling its approach to downsizing. The company sparked an outcry for firing 900 workers on Zoom in December and again in March when roughly 3,000 employees were laid off. It erroneously deposited severance payments into some workers' accounts before notifying them that they were being fired. 
During its latest round of layoffs, Better.com pointed to turbulence in the housing market as a reason for the contraction. The company has not said how many employees were included in the cuts or disclosed the total number of people it will employ after this downsizing. This is really sad to see. You know, I'm really sorry for the people who work there. I'm sure there were lots of great people who work there. It's good news for other companies. Um, talent is in short supply. I'm sure there are a lot of brilliant people there. Miserable, brutal for them. Um, and it's sad to see how you know a number of fintech companies are somewhat disgracing themselves by just poor management of not knowing how to treat people as human beings. So I'm really sorry to see it. I wish all the, the people who've been laid off well, I'm sure they'll find other new positions quickly. So, you know, go for it, headhunters. Go go contact those people and find them better jobs than better.com. That's sad. Nicole, back to you. So on the other end of the spectrum, Benjamin, we have got new banks securing a $650 million credit line for expansion in Mexico and Colombia. Uh, new Bank is one of the largest digital financial services platforms in Latin America. The funds have come from a three-year local currency line of credit financed by Morgan Stanley, Citi, Goldman and HSBC. And these institutions previously underwrote New Bank's IPO in December last year, where the fintech company raised around $2.8 billion. New Bank has said uh, that the, they plan to use uh, the funds to accelerate growth in both Mexico and Colombia. And yeah, not not surprising to hear that uh, Latin America is pretty much the hottest area of fintech at the moment, really conducive market conditions. Um, New Bank's seen real success so far. It's clearly got great backing, a good reputation. So yeah, I'm not surprised and um, will be interesting to see how they alter the offering for expansion across uh, across the market. New Bank is clearly getting a number of things uh, right, including uh, buying Sion's software, Pensy. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm all for New Bank. They're, they're an amazing company. They are indeed. If you want to hear more about what's going so right in Latin American fintech, uh, listen to episode 601 of Fintech Insider Insights with guests, including New Bank's Chief Product Officer, Jag Dibble. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final story of the week. So this is the NFT of Jack Dorsey's first tweet that struggled to sell, that was uh, gleefully reported pretty much everywhere. The buyer of an NFT of Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey's first tweet says he may never sell it after receiving a series of low bids. The tweet, which says, just setting up my Twitter, uh, was first posted in March 2006 and was auctioned off as an NFT last year by Mr. Dorsey for charity. Sina Estavi, chief executive of blockchain company Bridge Oracle, bought the NFT in March 2021 for $2.9 million. Mr. Estavi announced that the tweet was up for sale on NFT marketplace OpenSea for a whopping $48 million, with 50% of the sale going to charity. However, Estavi has been offered just $6,800 so far, or about 0.2% of the amount he paid for it. Mr. Astavi told the BBC, this NFT is the Mona Lisa of the digital world. There is only one of that, and it will never be the same. Well, clearly not everyone agreed. Um, uh, let's start with you, Bensi. What do you think? Well, like, uh, yeah, I, I read about this story, but first things first. So if I understand it correctly, Jack Dorsey sold it for charity. It was bought. And then now the owner is trying to resell it but only half of it is going to go to charity. So I question what's the other half going to go to? Like, is he trying to make a profit on an 
NFT that he bought, <laughs> which the funds went to charities. Anyhow, that's um, yeah, that's an interesting story in itself. On the other hand, you know, like uh, NFTs are. I think the overall transactions are, are are declining on a monthly month by month basis since this January. And in the meantime, I, I also read a recent article that ninety five percent of NFTs sold on a certain marketplace were just being uh, switched around by their owners. So I, I I question whether you know NFTs are are the next uh, big thing. We'll see. Who knows? Kate, what do you think? Are, are NFTs the, the ne next big thing or is this a, a bubble that was bound to burst? Or is this just one random story? That's. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a one random story that tells a bigger story, which is that this is a new area and only time will tell, right? It's going to be volatile for some time, for sure. Um, and it's going to take time to really understand the dynamics and the value. But today it's that NFT is worth what, about $7,000, that we know. Like I want to mention, I, I don't question whether NFTs are, are a good thing or, or not. In fact, I do see use cases where, you know, blockchain and, and even NFTs in itself can be applied for very, very good use cases that, that are probably going to be huge in the coming years. But, you know, for the fun of it, in, in terms of selling it as a memorabilia, I'm, I question whether that's working out or not. Sort of like Monarch, really, isn't it? Yeah, I, w I was quite surprised. I thought this would be a real snapped up, to be honest. I mean, I think it's a pretty cool thing to own. I probably wouldn't buy it, largely because I don't really have the funds to purchase the, however many, mil 48 million. <laughs> you only need $8,000, Nicole. I mean, it's it's expensive. Well, but... now, yeah, now it's in reach. So now I need to put my money where my mouth is, right, um, and purchase uh, this first suite. But no, I, I thought of all of the people in the world, sure, you know, it would it would have, there would have been an appetite for it. Um I wonder though if there's a, some something to do with the fact that this is a sort of web two style article with you know on Twitter is maybe I don't know how how is that viewed by the the crypto community and I wonder if that sort of impacted people's appetite for it or you know I, I wonder I wonder but yeah I I was quite surprised at just how much it had dropped. Okay, last question then. So if Nicole wants to buy this tweet but hasn't got the funds, um, Bensi and Kate, what piece of internet history would you want to own? I, I think Nicole should create an NFT of her own. She should sell that in order to raise the funds to buy this specific NFT. Excellent. Nice idea. Fun fact, I'm doing a big um, charity challenge in the summer and creating an NFT to raise funds was actually one of my ideas, but if you say I've not, not made so much progress with it, but maybe by June we'll, we'll get there. I, I'm curious to know what was Jack Dorsey's second tweet. Maybe I'll bid on that one. I think I'd like to own the Google homepage, but that's just me being greedy. All right. Um, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to today's guests. You've been fantastic. Where can uh, people find out a bit more about you? Uh, let's start with you, Kate. Sure, you can find me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at KMDrew. Uh, and you can find all of our research on ccginsights.com. And Nicole? You can get me on LinkedIn or email me at nicole.perry at 11fs.com. And Bensi? You can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Bensi Andrusak, and you can email me at bensa at sion.io. 
And I'm Benjamin Ensor, and you can find me on LinkedIn, or you can find out more about 11FS at 11FS.com. And thank all of you for listening. Please join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you so much, and goodbye. Goodbye.